0: Now, we're in 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 11 and 12 this morning, as we continue our journey through the books of First and Second Samuel, which will take us to, till June. The people of God, a king from God, is the theme of the books of Samuel. A people of God, a king from God, just so you know, Saul's not that king, if you were wondering. But we're in, in 11 and 12, we're looking at the start of the reign of King Saul. I wanted to read you a poem, a poem you're familiar with, what Robert Frost poem. I'm not very good at reading poetry, so I hope you'll give me some patience on this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. You've heard it? Oh, listen, nonetheless, it's still good, right? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler along I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent, in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was the grassy and wanted wear, though as far as that, the passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Standing in that yellow wood, he could only travel one of the roads. He had to choose one of them, and he tro- chose the one less traveled, and it made all the difference. You know, the choices we make and the roads we travel, they make a difference, don't they? How many of us look back on the choices in our life and would like a do-over or two or three or a baker's dozen? Where you go makes all the difference. Who you follow makes all the difference. And this morning, I want us very simply, very simply to, to tell a story, but this is a story of two kings. A story of two kings, and who we follow, the story of these two kings, makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the world. At the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 11, King Saul has been made king, but his reign has not yet been established. He's really, he's king in name only. A few people are following him, but many aren't. And early on in his reign, a conflict arises. A guy named Nahash, the Ammonite, boo. Nahash means snake. No, it's not Harry Potter. Stay with us. Okay. Nahash the Ammonite. When we say Nahash, you've got to play the Darth Vader tune in the back of your head. Nahash the Ammonite went and he besieged Jabesh Gilead. Where is Jabesh Gilead? All you need to know, it is a city in Israel, but it's in that portion of Israel that is to the east of the Jordan River. Two tribes, two and a half tribes really, made their claim in the promised land to land east of the Jordan River. All the other tribes came over the Jordan River. So Jabez Gilead is in the east of the Jordan River. Nahash went up to besiege their city, and they went out to meet him because Nahash had a powerful army, and they said, make a treaty with us because we know you're going to destroy us, right? And Nahash says to them, hey, absolutely, I'd be... Love to make a treaty with you because it saves me all the effort of conquering you. Just one thing, he says, everybody in your town will have one eye gouged out. Let's make a treaty and line up. I've got a doctor here with all the equipment necessary, a rusty hook, yeah, (laughs) Why would he want one eye gouged out? Well, simply this, because with all of the military men with an eye gouged out, they're not going to be very good with a bow. There's no way to aim a bow with one eye. There's no depth of field. It's nearly impossible to operate a sword accurately. But with one good eye, they can still cultivate their fields and harvest their grapes and their wheat, and so therefore pay him tribute. So he would cripple their military but keep their economy going, and everybody would have the nickname one Eye Jack. So it's kind of an added bonus. And everybody said, you know, I don't know if this is such a great deal. And so they said to Nahash, hey, tell you what, give us a week. We want to send an email to our buddies overseas. Okay, we're going to send couriers to our buddies on the other side of the Jordan River. And if anybody comes to our aid, then that will happen. But if not, then we will make a treaty with you. And Nahash, in his arrogance, said go for it. Now, why would Nahash let them go and call for aid? Well, two reasons. He had a lot of confidence that nobody would come to help these folks. He said, secondly, if they come to help them, it just brings all the armies I have to conquer into one convenient location. I don't have to travel all over Israel conquering the army. We can consolidate our efforts and do it all here and be done with the job. He says, go for it. So these couriers are sent out and the people of Israel are notified. Nahash the Anamai, that snake, is going to conquer us or gouge out our eyes. Either way, it's not good. And it came to Saul's town, Gibeah. And Saul was out plowing his fields. He had two oxen, and he was given notice that these, the people on the other side of the Jordan River were going to be conquered. Now, why was Saul out tilling his fields with a pair of oxen? Because Samuel had told him in 1 Samuel 10, verse 7, after he was anointed as king, Samuel said this, Do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Samuel had told King Saul, go, go to work, do what you got to do. God has given you, as king of Israel, authority to decide what is right for you. Saul wasn't necessarily being disobedient or abdicating his duty by tilling his field. It was an appropriate thing to do. But now that news had come to him that, that something was going on on the other side of the Jordan River, the Spirit of God moved in him and it made him angry. Made him real angry, so angry, he took the yoke off his oxen, he slaughtered them on the spot, and he turned them into hamburger. He chopped them into pieces. Messy business. He chops these oxen into pieces and packages the chopped up oxen and sends them all over Israel and says, show up to fight with me, or I will do this to all of your oxen. It's on, Saul said. Now, most people might have one oxen, maybe two. A person who loses his oxen would be destitute, a very difficult time plowing his fields, and so this was a serious threat. It was really a threat on their lives. Saul was telling "I'll do this to your oxen, but if we miscalculate and accidentally do it to you too, that's, that's not our problem. This was a threat. Show up, fight, or die. He moved by the Spirit of God to act in God's behalf. Now, what was Saul's calling as king? We've talked about this before. What was his primary role as king? God wanted the king of Israel to do one primary job to draw his people into covenant relationship with God. The job of the king was to lead the people in covenant relationship with God himself. God wanted Saul to lead the people to God. When Samuel said to Saul, Go and do what your hand can find to do, his hope was that his hand would find to lead the people to God. And the Spirit of God is now moving in Saul, and we have a little glimmer of hope that maybe Saul is going to lead folks to God, isn't he? Maybe maybe it's going to work out. Maybe Saul is going to be that godly king. 300,000 men show up. There's only one other place in the Bible where a larger army shows up for the people of Israel. He sends a message to the people on the other side of the Jordan River and says, Listen, don't worry about it. By noon tomorrow, I will drop the mic on the Ammonites. You, maybe you don't know that reference. Um, I'll destroy them. It's on. We're going to wipe them all out. Don't worry about it. And so the people on the other side of the Jordan River, they went up to the Ammonites and said, Hey, you know what? We've decided we want to make that treaty with you. Um, our left eyes have never been really good anyway. But let's do it tomorrow after lunch. And the Ammonites Hey, that works out for us. Get a, we're out here. May as well have a party. A treaty. We'll set it for tomorrow after lunch. So the Ammonites go to their tents. Saul, on the other side of the river, is dividing his force into three different groups, and he's going to ambush the Ammonites. And it says, in the middle of the night, those three groups invaded the Ammonites and completely wiped them out. In fact, it says it wiped them out to such a degree that the Ammonites fled from the army of Saul... That no single soldier of the Ammonites was with another soldier. They were, everyone was alone, running for their life. It was a complete rout, a complete destruction. Saul gathered his army, he invaded the Ammonites, and he had total and complete victory. You think the Israelites were stoked? In the Hebrew, it says stoked. Well, they were thrilled. They were thrilled. In verse 12, First Samuel 11, the people said to Samuel, let's get everybody together. Let's reaffirm Saul as king and bring everybody who opposed him, everybody who, when he was first anointed king, who didn't want him as king, hey, let's kill them all. And Saul says, no, 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 this is a day of celebration. In verse 13, he says, no, no one should be put to death today for this is the day the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul, We have a little bit of hope for Saul, don't we, here? Maybe Saul gets it. Maybe he's not the nincompoop we thought he was. He really is, by the way. I don't want to give the story away. Maybe he's going to get it. The Lord has rescued, Saul said. Nobody was killed that day, and they had a great feast. It says they they celebrated uh, and worshiped God with fellowship offerings. Those are offerings that are offered to God, but then the offering itself, after being cooked, is then eaten together. It's really a, a worship of God at a barbecue. You cook it and say, God, enjoy the smoke, and I'll take the steaks. It's my favorite offering. So there was this great celebration, this great fellowship and joy. The king has given us victory. But we need to understand before we get into chapter 12, storm clouds are already starting to brew on the horizon. Something isn't quite right. Something isn't sitting right here. King Saul has already affirmed that the Lord had given them this great victory. Why would God give King Saul this great victory? So that the people of Israel would follow King Saul. He's affirmed as king. Why would God do such a work so that all the people would follow King Saul wherever he would go? Why would God do that? So they would listen to King Saul when he says, let's follow God. Let's obey his covenant. Let's follow his statutes. Let's make sure we don't worship idols. Let's make sure uh, we keep our boundary stones in the proper location. Let's make sure we observe the appropriate offerings and that the priesthood is properly respected and funded. The victory was given to Saul not to escape the Ammonites. The victory was given to Saul so people would follow King Saul to God himself. This is a story of two kings. This is a king who leads to victory. The question is will he lead the people to God? That's the great question at the end of this story. At the end of chapter 11, the great celebration is happening. And the question that weighs on our hearts and minds is is he going to lead to God? You know the answer. You probably know a little of King Saul, don't you? Chapter 12 begins, and Samuel gets up. Never invites Samuel to a party. He's a gigantic party pooper. And he gets up and puts all of the people of Israel on trial. And he's going to charge them with four offenses in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12. In verses 1 through 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 12, he comes to them and says, As judge over you for all these years, have I ever cheated you? Have I ever taken a single animal from you? Have I taken any of your gold, any of your silver? Look in my hands. Is anything that belongs to you in my hands? And what did the people of Israel say? He said, no, you have, you've never cheated us. You've, you've never taken anything from us unfairly, he says in the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 12. And he says, listen, I charge you as witnesses, people of Israel, in the presence of your king and in the presence of God, I have spent my entire life drawing you to God himself, have asked you for nothing in return, and I charge you with guilt because you would rather follow this king who will not lead you to God. My hands are empty. I have led you to God and you have asked for a king when I have already, for no cost, for no cheating, No unfair treatment. I have been leading you to God for all these years. Charge number one. I have already been leading to you to God, where God wants to take you, and you've rejected me and God Himself. And you have no cause to do so. Second charge. Remember Israel when you came out of Egypt. You remember Egypt? You remember when you were in Egypt all of those years and they mistreated you? Who saved you from Egypt? You can say, what's the answer? Who saved them from Egypt? It's God Himself. They cried out and said, God, we need your deliverance. And God just took care of business. What did the Israelites do? They walked. Congratulations on having the ability to be ambulatory. Walked out of Egypt, walked through a, a, a giant sea, and then walked right away from Egypt, and they were completely destroyed. God says, listen, I saved you from Egypt for my own purposes, by my own power. You did nothing but, but say, rescue us, God. Charge number two, you have forgotten that God rescues you when you seek Him. Charge number three in verses 9 through 11 from Saul, he says this, think of all of the judges. Think of Gideon. Think of Deborah. And he even says, think of me as the final judge. Every time a nation invaded Israel to persecute you and destroy you, and you cried out to God, God, forgive us for our sins, save us. What did God do? He saved them every time. He saved them every time, not because they deserved it, not because they had the power. He would send someone like Samson or Gideon or Deborah to save them every single time that they might worship God and God alone. And finally, Nahash of the Ammonites shows up at their doorway and they're going to die. The Ammonites were bad dudes. Nahash and the Ammonites showed up at the doorway. Look with me at verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said, God save us? No, what did they say? We want a king. Now all of a sudden their desire for a king is being made known a little more clearly. They were concerned about an invading force, and what? They were tired of having to depend on God. If only we had a king who could deliver us from the Ammonites, we wouldn't have to bother with this pesky God. It's irritating. Then the Ammonites invaded, and God had granted them a king. And what did King Saul do for them? He achieved this great victory. This great victory was achieved and so he is a king who leads them to victory but not a king who will lead them to God. God has a pattern of rescuing the people of Israel when they call out in his name and seek his face and the people of Israel were tired of doing it and they wanted a king who could give them a victory without having to lead them to this God who demanded obedience. God has a pattern of rescue but it requires depending on him and the people of Israel were tired of depending on him. So Israel got a king, and the king gave them what they wanted, victory. And now they didn't have to bother with this pesky God. But a problem shows up. Storm clouds are on the horizon, aren't they? Samuel, after making these four accusations, he says this in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 12. We read it already. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do. This reminds us of a verse, several verses at the end of Job, where Job had the gall to argue with God about what was good for Job, and God said this to Job, do you know the verse? Gird your loins like a man, Job, because I'm going to have a conversation with you. And this is Samuel to the people of Israel, gird your loins, folks, it's on. God wants to show you who you have chosen to follow. Stand still and let me show you this great thing God is going to do. And it was harvest time. The wheat was ready to be harvested. They stood there at the barbecue. And at the, below them, on the fields below them, there was miles and miles and miles of wheat ready to be harvested. Wouldn't it be cool? They had peace on every side. They had the, the meat on the grill. And they knew that that winter they would have full bellies all winter long, peace and prosperity, and they don't have to bother with this pesky God. And Samuel says, simmer down. What do you see over there? Storm clouds coming in at harvest time. What happens to wheat if you get a good hard rain on it when it's ready for harvest? That's bad news. I'm not a farmer or the son of a farmer, but I understand that will ruin much of it. But this wasn't just rain clouds, this was a thunderstorm. This was going to rain, this was going to hail, and now the people of Israel realized that their entire crop was at risk of being wiped out. God had done this before. He had done this to the Philistines and completely destroyed their economy. God can, on a whim, completely destroy their ability to to have food. And they realize that they have a problem. The problem was they sought peace and prosperity without God. Their bellies were full and they had peace on every side and they had forgotten that the true hunger they had was not for food or peace, but it was for God himself. Isn't that a great danger when we're full and we're at peace? We just don't need God that much. This is precisely what happened to Israel. They had a king that had given them everything they demanded, conquered their greatest enemy. They had fields full of food. And they had no hunger for God. The hunger for God was gone because their, their full bellies and their contentment in, in where they were. But you do understand, we were made by God for God. And we are never really truly full unless we are in God's presence, fellowshipping with Him. And so God wants to show them, as this storm cloud moves over, He wants to show them that they had victory over the tiniest of enemies, and now they've made an enemy of the greatest of forces. They've traded a very small enemy, the Ammonites, and now they're contending with God himself. Just so you know, you may not agree with me, that was a bad decision. Now they face God himself, who on a whim could destroy the entire planet. The Ammonites, what's the worst that they could do? Gouge out their left eye. Now all of a sudden, that doesn't seem so bad. God makes it known through Samuel that they had victory over a small enemy and they had made an enemy of God. Samuel called on the Lord, the Lord thundered and the Lord reigned and the people stood in awe of the Lord and Samuel and their faces turned white as sheets. Sweat went down their necks and they realized, oh my lands, we have really messed up. We have followed a king who leads us to victory and he has led us away from God himself. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants because we're going to die. They finally are repenting now. They are finally saying we have followed the wrong thing. They, we have sought peace and prosperity without God. And we realize we have now put ourselves in the worst possible position we could be in. We repent. We chose the weaker king. And we cannot contend with God himself. And Samuel says, don't be afraid, but follow God, and your king must follow God, and Saul is not going to. Saul is not going to. They chose a king, and the king is seeking his own victory, and they got the king they asked for, and this king is going to lead them away from God. This is a story of two kings. King Saul led them into everything they asked for, and you know what? The the honest truth is this. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is to get everything we ever wanted, And that's precisely what happened to the people of Israel. They got everything they ever wanted, and now they had no need of God himself, and they found themselves in the position of being enemies of God. And they repented because they knew they couldn't contend with God. A king who leads to victory. Wouldn't we like a king like that? I mean, come on, be honest, right? Wouldn't it be great to have a king who gave us everything we wanted, peace, prosperity? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Wouldn't have to worry about anything? Sometimes getting what we want is the worst thing that can happen. When we celebrate communion, it's an act of faith where we eat the bread and drink the cup, and we, that's where we testify out loud by faith saying, you know what? I'm hungry. I need Jesus. That's why communion is so important for the body of believers who, like us, is oftentimes very full, where our needs are met. And we do have problems and challenges we face, but most of us do not worry about missing a meal or someone invading and destroying our homes in the middle of the night. We eat the bread and drink the cup to remind each other, listen, we may feel full today, I may feel at peace today, but I have to be reminded I need Jesus, I need to be hungry for Him. I need to uh, forsake the false idols of security in this place and stir up in my heart a hunger for Christ alone. A king who leads to victory can sometimes be the worst king of all. This is a story of two kings, though, right? We need to talk about the other king? See, well, we're at the end of the chapter. Aren't we done? No, we're not done. Nice try. First king is a king who leads to victory. The second king is a king who leads to God. Samuel talked in his charges against Israel about God's deliverance from Egypt and God's deliverance during the times of the judges. In Hebrews chapter 4 the writer and author of the book of Hebrews talks about another time that God delivered the people of Israel, and that was in the time of Joshua. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, God says this, now Joshua invaded the promised land. Didn't he you remember that story? He crosses the, the Jordan River, and then he meets the angel of the Lord, and then they march around Jericho seven times and seven more times, and I think they had segues, so it was easier. The walls collapsed, but that was just the first of of many cities that they destroyed so that the people of Israel invaded the promised land, and we call that the conquest. And Joshua and Caleb together had great victory upon great victory, and they took over the land. And this was what the author of Hebrews says about that time, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God rested from his back in creation. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The people of Israel had wandered in the the wilderness for 40 years because of disobedience. And Joshua and Caleb led the next generation into the promised land. And we might be thinking mistakenly, well, now the people of Israel are at rest, aren't they? And the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 there was, there was not rest yet. The rest was yet to come. The rest was going to come from someone else. Rest couldn't come from Joshua. He was just a general of an army. The real calling for the people of God is to rest from their own work He says in in Hebrews 4, verse 10, anyone who rests, enters God's rest, rests from his own work. How do we rest from our own work and allow God to do all the work? Well, fortunately, the author of Hebrews tells us all about it in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read a verse or two in Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, you can turn there or jot it down and read it later or follow along with me. Your call. "'Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith.' having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some have done, but let's encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching." what does Jesus do in this passage? Everything Saul didn't do. Saul, as the king of God's people, was to lead the people of God to God Himself through covenant obedience. What does Jesus do? He sacrifices His own life to fully cover the broken covenant of our lives and provide a new way for us to go into the presence of God. Jesus himself dies and says, I will pave the road with my blood that you might have full access into the presence of God himself. Jesus is the king that leads us directly to God himself, the kind of king Saul could never be. Jesus makes a way to God. If Saul was a king who leads to victory, a false victory at best, Jesus is a king who leads us to God himself. David is going to be a foreshadow of Jesus, but Jesus gets the job done, doesn't he? He makes a way to God, and he defeats his enemies by his sacrifice. I want to make three comparisons between Saul and Jesus. Are you ready? When Saul is facing an enemy, how does he gather an army? Through conscription. Join me or die. That's called the draft, if you didn't know. How does Jesus conquer his enemies? He sympathizes with us and says, I will die so you can join me. How does Saul achieve his victory? Through human strength. How big is their army? Let's have one bigger. Through human strength, Saul accomplishes his victory. How does Jesus accomplish his victory? In our weakness. Through his humiliation, he achieves complete and total victory. Through his own humiliation, in our weakness, he saves dead people and brings them back to life. That's not a fancy army. Think about it, it's a zombie army. but No, don't think about that. It's terrible. He brings people to life, says, join my army through my death and resurrection. Through weakness, he has victory. How does Saul achieve his victory? Through strategy and cunning. Divide his army into three forces so if any one force is conquered, the other two can still achieve victory. How does Jesus achieve our victory? He just simply rescues us. And saves us from our perilous position. Saul and Jesus could not be more different. Jesus does everything, does all the work that we might walk into the presence of God and do something crazy. What is it? Rest. Now, that's a king. doesn't give us a dinner that will make us full so we won't want Him anymore. He makes us hungry so we'll follow Him through the blood of His body into the presence of God where we will never hunger again. Look with me at Hebrews 4, beginning of verse 14. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive mercy and grace To help us in our time of need. What's our calling and our weakness? To be good enough so God will show up? That sounds like Saul. To boldly walk into the throne of grace and say, God, hook me up, I am done. And God says, You with Jesus? Yeah, I'm with Jesus. All right, we're We're good. He has gone through the heavens that we might have access into the very throne room of God with no inhibition, there's no velvet rope. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. It's a weird sentence, isn't it? Let us make every effort to rest. Why do we have to make effort to rest? Because our default human condition is to work our tails off to rest. I work hard and I play hard. I do my religion the same way. And Jesus said, no, how about this? I'll do all the work, you do all the resting. That doesn't sound right. Doesn't that sound wonky? I don't know. That's not how religion works. Okay, so let's not do religion. Let me do do all the dying, you do all the resting. It's unbelievable. This isn't a king who just gives us an empty victory like, like Saul. This is a king who leads us into the presence of God alone. Now, if you don't want the presence of God, King Jesus does nothing for you. But if you want the presence of God, which is how you were built, Jesus paves the road with his blood and gives you the power through his victory. Two roads. A king who leads to victory. It's tempting. Everything you ever wanted, peace, prosperity, joy. Or a king who leads to God. Two roads. There's a danger in victory, isn't there, in our lives? There's a danger with everything going the way it needs to go. There's a danger, if I can say it this way, there's a danger with success. Frankly, when we're successful, we're kind of like King Saul. We tend to overestimate our own importance, isn't it? Don't we? Tip of the hat. Thanks, Jesus. I did most of the work. There's a danger in our own victories, and our own successes, because in our fullness, we don't hunger for God like we ought to. In our contentedness, in our peacefulness, in in our self importance, God is second best at best. There's a danger in our victory. We need to understand that in our own victories, in our own senses of self importance, we have to remember there are storm clouds on the horizon. Maybe you know this. Um, You go to the grocery store. You ever been in there? Uh, Yeah. I know, that's where the ice cream is. Of course you go there. Um, I don't have a problem with ice cream, just so you know. I could stop any (laughs) time. If all of the supply lines were shut off tomorrow, how many days' supply do you think is in an average grocery store? Two days. Now, if supply lines were cut off tomorrow, it'd be empty in about two hours, wouldn't it? See, we walk into that store and say, there's never going to be a problem. Look at it, the shelves are stocked. It's funny, no matter how much stuff I buy in there, every time I go in there, it's full. But it's an illusion. That switch could be flipped off tomorrow, and those shelves could be empty in 48 hours. We have an illusion of confidence in the systems around us. And the storm clouds are on the horizon. When the storm clouds hit, the question is, when that storm shows up, are we on the storm's team or are we living in our own sense of self-importance? In Revelation chapter 4, unsurprisingly, the presence of God is described how? With thunder and lightning. And then the Lamb of God shows up. When that storm shows up, your prayer ought to be, I have been pursuing Him. When all the world falls away, you want to be with the one who is in the storm. Many of us are so lucky to face the storm here and now. Heaven forbid that we have everything we want our whole life and we don't face the storm until we've passed over because that's called judgment. And that's a scary notion. It's better to face the storms here and move toward God in repentance, acknowledging our own sense of self-importance and say, God, rid me of my fullness that I might hunger for you alone. Do not take the risk of facing the thunder of the throne of heaven unprepared. When we face that throne, my prayer for all of us is, we can say, I'm with the lamb. And he says, all right, come on in. Enjoy the show. Danger of victory. Second thing I want you to think about is just a question. Obviously, it's not for you. It's for the person sitting next to you, right? Think about your life and your relationship with God, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Here's the question. Would you describe your life with God as a life at rest? Think of your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with God. Is it a life at rest? Do you think the author of Hebrews was teasing? Strive to enter my rest? Nah, kidding. Work really hard and feel guilty most of your life. No. Our life with God ought to be, the goal is, the the, the hope is that in Christ we rest. I'm going to say something crazy. And most of you probably won't even believe me. Here it is. This is nuts. Are you ready? You're good. Like right now, sitting where you are in Christ, you're good. I mean, didn't you, uh, you, we walk into a place like this, it's a church, and a pastor's going to get up and talk fancy. Sorry to disappoint. And we feel like, okay, oh man, I am not so good. You're good. God is looking at those who are in Christ by faith and saying, and dialed in, I see Jesus in you. I mean, but we're thinking, oh, no, you you have no idea what I did. It doesn't even matter. You're good. Somehow we get this notion in our heads, well, Jesus died for everything except for the thing I did five minutes ago. You have no idea, Greg, I am terrible. I never read my Bible. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to read your Bible, I'm going to say, guess what? You're good. I bet you most of us have spent our entire Christian life thinking we're not good. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Raise the hand of your heart. Is that a thing? Seth? We have eyes of our hearts, hand of our heart. You spend, I mean, come on, honestly, if those of you who grow up in church, this is what we're taught from a little kid. You're not yet good, so suck it up and get her done. Rest. You're good. Jesus paid it all, including that thing five minutes ago. But i got to get better. I've got to fix some stuff, Greg. I, you have no idea what I struggle with. You're right, I don't. You're good. There's a funny verse in the Bible. It says this, He who began a good work in you went on vacation, so suck it up and get it done, please. Right? Did I quote it right? I don't know if I got it right. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. When we think, I'm not good, we've told God he's not faithful. You are today, in this moment, precisely where he intended you to be. I'm not saying you like it, but he didn't make a mistake. He who began a good work in you. Another way we say, I trust God with you more than I trust you with you. I actually happen to believe, no matter what you have in your mind, that God is powerful enough to overcome your stuff, frankly, my stuff, and complete his work in us. Amen? What are we going to do? I don't know why I do this when I rest. We rest. I'm good. You're good. We're good. Danger of victory, we overestimate our own importance and fail to hunger for God. Secondly, we need to rest. I am not worried that in your resting you will walk away from God. I am worried that in your striving you will walk away from God. Lastly, like it or not, you were made for Him. He formed you into the shape, body and soul, that fits into Him. All of us were created to aspire to worship. And we were made to worship Him, but we rebelled against Him long ago. And your heart is wayward and it will pursue to worship all kinds of things. Victory and successes and money and pleasure and peace and prosperity and all these things that are good things but not ultimate things. You were made for Him, and this is just the last question, you can't rest if this isn't true, are you in Him? Has He moved into your heart and and made you new by faith in Him? We're walking through the woods, and when there's two roads in front of us now, a king that leads to victory, and that's the well-worn road. It's the road of, of religion and good behavior and everybody knows on that road. You know a bunch of good people on that road. They're good people. And there's another road that very few people are walking down. I'm not making this up. Jesus said it first. And on that road, it's a bunch of really weird people, and they're doing something very, very weird. They're being still and watching to see what God will do. And they're resting knowing this great God is the one who will take them down the road. And our, our tendency is not to be like Robert Frost who saw the well-worn road say, well, that'll be a little bit better and all the really respectable people are there. We look at the, at the road less traveled where people are being still and resting and allowing the power and faithfulness of God to do their work in them and, and staying hungry for Him. And guess where that road leads? Right to the throne of grace the place we were created to live forever. My challenge for us is to take the road less traveled. Not a king who takes us to victory, but a king who takes us to God.